everybody, and welcome to episode 50 of the Poetry Space. It feels cool to hit the 5-0 milestone and to be talking about plagiarism as well in it, which I think is a topic that was suggested by uh, Julian Matthews to Tim. So how are you doing today, Tim? I'm doing great, Katie. It's a very cold, you know, sleety, snowy day here up in the mountains in Southern California. I wish you were here to uh, enjoy some hot coffee with me. I wish I was there too, although it's like 74 here in Texas and sunny. I've got to be, maybe we should pick to be here, although I'm always drawn into snow. Maybe. It is beautiful though, out the window as the uh, the slush rings against the glass. Did you say that originally or is that a line copied from someone? It's probably copied like everything is, I think. <laughs> yeah, that's a, a fair way to uh, perhaps just jump into this space with looking at that. Is everything a collaboration? What is originality? you know, is a big question, especially today. Yeah, I thought I'd start out with a, a poem of my own, in my own story that, that relates to this topic. Um, this is a poem called Utsi. So I, I wrote this poem um, for a Rattlecast in, I think, October 2020. And you have to know, it's based on um, this, uh, the, the prompt was to write uh, a persona poem from the voice of someone dead, I think, if I remember right. And I'd just seen a story about Utsi or something that reminded me of Utsi, and um, way back in 2013, I'd listened to a Radiolab episode that I loved uh, about Utsi, uh, which is this Iceman they found in the Utsal Alps, north of Italy, uh, in 1991. And it's a, it's a, it's a mummy that was uh, really especially well-preserved. Uh, he was sort of freeze-dried, and so became this perfect specimen um, and died around 3400 B.C., so about 5,000 years ago. And what's fascinating about it is he was so well-preserved that they could do this whole chronology of his life um, by looking at his intestines, the kind of pollen that was on the food he ate from showed like his elevation um, in the, like an autopsy of his body showed the wounds that were around him. And so he started up at like 10,000 feet and then came down to maybe 2,000 feet, got in a fight, ended up with someone else's blood on him and then fled back up high because you could see how fast his elevation was changing he was sort of eating, um, you know, whatever he could find, not, no, no real meals. Um, and then finally, after a couple of days, he made this big meal of, um, of goat, I think, and then was shot in the back and killed. So it seems like he, uh, something happened, he got in a fight, then he fled, people were pursuing him, he thought he was safe, and then he died. And, and I wrote this poem about it for, for the uh, Rattlecast. It's called Utsi. You've made a museum of me, stacked stones like blue ice at the feet of my mountain, we pile our stones on the peaks where the wind speaks in the voices of the gods. Am I one of your gods? Is this why you brought me here? I whisper, but there is no wind. Your torchlights never flicker in this smooth room. Everything echoes. What would you like to know? The secrets of time? What is time but the spine of a mountain bending back? And what is a story but the arc of time? You know mine. You've made a map of my meals. You've measured my wounds with every kind of metal. I worked with metal. I know the rocks that weep and the power of a blade. But I'll tell you what you know. I climbed down to the village and the smoking huts were too much smoke. I killed two painted men with the same arrow, wrestled with a knife and fled. They found me by my fire two days later, my belly full of meat and bread. You found me still full of that meat and bread. I'll tell you what you really want to know. Was I happy in my little life? Was I happier than you are now? Yes, so happy that I fled. So happy that I built the flame and ate the bread that brought the arrow I knew was coming. So happy with life that the ice was all I had left to turn to. And so that's my poem, Utsi. And I liked it. I thought it was a good poem. The, um, I think James Dickey Review um, asked if they could publish it. So it was published in the summer issue of the James Dickey Review, like nine months later. And then about a year after that, um, I was listening to podcasts, like I often do Walking the Dog, and flipping through Radio Labs, and the Utsi episode from, you know, eight years before at that point, maybe, came up. And so I thought I'd listen to it again. And I listened to the Utsi episode again. And at the very end, I'd completely forgotten, but they referenced this uh, story. Um, a short story called The Iceman Speaks by uh, St Stephen Merrill Block. And there was a link at the bottom in the notes to go as bonus content to listen to the story too. So I clicked to that and listened to it. And uh, I'll read the first paragraph here. Um, this is uh, The Iceman Speaks again by Stephen Merrill Block. 
Did I dream in that very long time in between? Maybe I did, but I do not remember. When I think of those thousands of years now, I think of an endless and ice slick falling, like the great cracks that split the glaciers up on our highest mountains. We used to drop rocks into those beautiful and broken shadows and tell stories about the places where the rocks landed. But our stories were nothing like the places where I landed, which was a bright cave of sharp stone and wooden shapes named the lab. And so I, I heard that you know opening paragraph and had this like moment of terror, wondering if I might have plagiarized this short story, which I'm sure I listened to like seven years before I wrote my story, but completely forgotten about. And um, and so I had this like maybe for an hour I sat there comparing the transcript of this story to my poem, and they are very different. Um, you know, in the in the short story. Uh, the Iceman sort of brought back to life as an android and like the future and then sort of questions and sort of gets angry about why they brought him back in the first place is kind of how the story goes. But the voice to me is like eerily similar. It feels like I absorbed the voice from this, uh, this short story maybe and then, you know, re-articulated that in my version of it, which was Utsi in his museum talking to me as I was imagining standing in front of um the exhibit at the Utsi Museum in, in Northern Italy. And, um, and it goes in different places. And, and I, I looked through everywhere that I could find for, for things that were similar. At one point, he mentions painted men is like another tribe that might, he might fought with. So there's that. And then at one point, he, um, in the story, he talks about metal sweating as a way of making um, uh, you know, um, metalwork. And I have the line about the rocks that weep and so it's sort of similar, but no, the lines are exactly the same. And, and, and so it just made me, I was sort of had this terrifying feeling that I might have plagiarized the voice, if nothing else, even though I can't really find any reason to call it plagiarism either. And so I don't know. So that's just, this, a story that's been sitting in my head, that sort of accidental plagiarism that happens so easily when we read a lot. Well, from my perspective, I would say that that is not plagiarism and rather a beautiful continuation of a certain theme. I mean, it does call to mind, too, that anytime you're writing about a very specific thing, that there's really not that much relative to like, you know, love poems or something more general, that that it's possible to feel that way. But I also love that you brought us back to antiquity because I found out in my research that the first person to ever supposedly, you know, uh, accused somebody else of plagiarism was actually a poet. It was a Roman, the Roman poet Marshall. And plagiarism actually comes from the Latin word for kidnapper. So he actually accused somebody uh, of kidnapping his poems, which honestly gets to the heart of, I was trying to define plagiarism. It's just totally one of those words that seems black and white until you actually delve into it. And the best definition that I saw that resonated the most with me was taken from Dr. Amy Robillard, who said plagiarism is theft. So I like distinguishing that as, you know, if it's actually stolen, if something falls into your purse, which literally happened to me while playing poker once, I looked down and somebody's like $8,000 had fallen into my purse at the poker table, which I did return. If it's, if it's accidental and then amends are made, then that's totally different. But is it actually theft? And of course, Tim, in your case, it was not. Well, then there's a thing, you know, a good poets borrow, great poets steal. <laughs> I can't remember who said that, but but that comes up too. Um, I don't know. It's strange. And I, I wonder, one of the reasons I wanted to share is just to see what everybody thought about the comparison. I'm not sure if I should add a footnote um, about, because it's not written after that story, uh, but somehow I think I might have internalized that story, which is a different kind of thing. Um, so I feel like if I if I added a note at the bottom of that poem, like when I publish it in a book, it's sort of like a false lead because it's not actually a response to that. Um, but but yeah. the, there's a piece of that story like living inside my poem. And so I'm not sure what, how to deal with that. Well, I'd say that there's a piece of every story living in every single poem and every poem that's written today is just layered on top of all the poems that came before it. If I was going to say something about that, I actually have a brief story of, of more blatant plagiarism, uh, shall we say, that was me in high school. If you guys want to want to hear me uh, embarrass myself for a minute, I had my AP English teacher, Major Hall, who I was kind of terrified of and always like over eager to impress in a school of kids that were over eager to impress. And we were studying the Odyssey and or the Iliad. And 
we were doing, like he would give a lot of extra credit if you did an insane amount of research about whatever section we were reading that day. And I noticed that the kids around me were just copying, pasting things from, you know, the internet, nebulous as it was at the time. Um, and then he would give them like a million extra credit points. And meanwhile, I was like actually doing my assignments and really annoyed. And so I just decided one day, well, I'm just going to do what the other kids are doing. And I, I did it like ridiculous, like to prove a point, I printed out like 50 pages or something. Like there was no way I wrote it. And basically major hall just pulled me aside and was like, come on, Katie. And I was like, okay, okay. And that was, that was my foray into plagiarism. Yeah, well, that's the uh, the blatant example, the hard plagiarism that uh, it comes up where you just, you know, people, one of the reasons we write is for that pat on the back and that little credit, you know, and that feeling of uh, that you've done something and accomplished something and made something. And you can get that really cheaply by stealing it. It's just a fact. And so a lot of people are motivated um, to just do that, especially when they're younger and don't think of the consequences. Uh, one of the things um, that I realized pretty early on uh, putting together the Rattle Young Poets anthology is that we have to really be extra vigilant about kids um, and plagiarism because it, it's, you could just see it because this happened in the second anthology. There's a poem in there, which is pulled from the website now, but um, um, that was uh, just plagiarized from an old nursery rhyme that no one, you know, none of our proofreaders or myself had ever heard of. It was just that poem repeated and you could see how it happened so easily. The kid, you know, writes, or, you know, steals a poem shows it to the teacher. The teacher doesn't recognize it. So, so you know, she gives them a high five or pat on the back, says it's great. And then they show the parents and the parents don't recognize it. And so everyone's praising the kid for this poem that the kid didn't write. And how, you know, how much courage do you have at nine years old to stand up and say, oh, I actually didn't write that. And so they just go along with it the whole way until it ends up in an issue of uh, the Rally Young Poets anthology. And so you can see, you know, on a juvenile level, how that's so easy for it to happen. And then, you know, happens too sometimes with adults even. But with adults, we have that idea of your whole career and reputation being destroyed and, and what would the point be. <laughs> but um, but with, with younger kids, there's that real lure to do it. Yeah, that's definitely true. And it's something that I was thinking about too with preparing for this space was like maybe part of why cliches are, are so ill thought of and everything is because it almost feels like you're plagiarizing something else. I mean, at its core, most cliches have something about them that's really appealing and really resonates with people. Usually it being uh, an excellent metaphor that just is, is perfect and becomes too perfect and then becomes a cliche. But it's almost like when you take a cliche, you're, you're stealing somebody's uh, great ideas, almost how it feels. Yeah, well, cliches become cliches because they work well. They're good analogies that become so used that they're not original anymore. <laughs> so it is kind of like that, yeah. Yeah, that's definitely true. And um, so I know that, too, I should say, we are covering, like, the current scandal in here. Um, but we also want to make sure that we cover plagiarism as a whole within poetry. And so I think that next what we should actually do is go in a direction of more specifically the idea of plagiarism within haiku because we have Michael Dylan Mulch here with us. And I have to say, it is February now, so it is the start of National Haiku Writing Month, which I love that. I assume, Michael, it was probably you that picked to have it of February to have the Haiku Writing Month, the shortest month of the year, which I love. Um, and Michael is also in on Rattlecast episode 180 with Tim. And if you haven't seen it, it's one of my absolute favorite Rattlecasts. So thank you, Michael, for joining us today in National Haiku Writing Month too. Just kick it off. How are you doing? Well, I think he might be uh, struggling to unmute himself. Well, I don't know if it's going to work. Maybe we should uh, switch our switch gears and talk about uh, the current plagiarism scandal instead. Um, which uh, I don't know. If, I, I don't know if I want to. I think you might feel the same way, Katie. I don't know if I want to name the person and give them sort of attention in that way. I feel almost it's like a, a kind of Operation Chaos type. Uh, I don't know mass shooting event <laughs> where we don't want to give the publicity to the person. So he who shall not be named is this character. Right. Let's just call him Voldemort. Let's call him Voldemort. Yeah. Okay. Well, I don't. That gives him too much credit though. Too. It's just such an easy thing to do to swipe people's poems and <laughs> resubmit them somewhere else. But he's been doing this in a widespread manner for, <laughs> for I don't know how long. Um, and you know, copying poems from one magazine and then submitting them to the other under his own name, changing a couple words in the title. And um, he's been doing this for such a long time, and it's a real problem actually because it's 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 
you know, all of the way that literary magazines operate rely on such trust. Like we have to know as an editor, you have to know, you know, I have the person sign a little waiver saying it's their own original poem every time we publish it. But I have to take their word on that. There's no way you can find um, other poems and realize what's plagiarized and what's not. Um, or what's borrowed or what's what's anything. We have to take poets at their word or else none of this works. And we don't have some kind of, yeah, we don't have like a research department like the New York Times that can you know fact check every detail to make sure nothing's wrong. We have to, uh, we have to have a kind of faith in the people who are submitting. And yeah, you know, this serial plagiarist is is violating that faith and making it really difficult to function for literary magazines. Yeah, and I would say, too, there's a specific form of cruelty in stealing somebody's poem that I think is different uh, even than an article or an essay, even though I love that kind of writing, too. It's a very intimate thing to steal. And and also to steal a poem and then, you know, try to place it somewhere that it's not a paying outpost, too, I think is particularly odd. I think we should also say that this person's sort of strategy is that and the way that they stay a bit more under the radar is that they change the title. I believe at least every instance I've seen following the scandal has been that the title is changed and it's usually changed to a simpler title that's referenced within the poem, but you know, a, a less specific thing that maybe you're going to uh, gloss over, I think is a fair thing too with the title as, as for how they managed to accomplish this. And is it fair to say too, Tim, that's been going on, this person's been doing this for years? Um, I'm, I'm not really sure. I haven't followed it that closely to know how long he's been doing it, but I know he's been submitting and, and not getting into Rattle for a long time, even though he claims in his bio that Rattle is one of the places he's been published. Um, I think we have two people here who were involved and maybe no more. Uh, maybe we should start with uh, John Compton, who had one of his poems stolen. Uh, Mary, his poem that was published in One Art, um, was one of the poems that this uh, character ripped off. Hey, John, are you there? Can you unmute? Well, hello, and thank you for having me. Um, but yeah, it was it was crazy. So I seen this post on Facebook of this lady was, and she was like, "Oh, it's really cool that my poem got published, but unfortunately, this person um, plagiarized this poem." And then it led me to One Art, and I've been published in One Art, and I know Mark's here. And One Art is fantastic, and so I looked up my poems. Um, and so I typed in the person's name in the first line and, and my poem came up and, and I found two magazines and then someone recently found a third magazine it was in, but this person also is getting paid for the poems when you're a smaller poet and stuff. And I always thought, you know, oh, it'd be so cool if someone wanted to plagiarize my poem. And then it happened and I was like, well, this sucks. And then I found out he got paid for my work and I'm like, well, this sucks even more. Um, but yeah, so he changed the title and took the two lines referring to gay out. Um, and so it was it was crazy. And so um and so I I've tried to be helpful with it too and and contact magazines and let them know you have this person published and they're plagiarists. And usually they go, Oh, thank you, you know, I took their poem away. But I am the poetry editor of Ghost City Review, so I decided to see if I've accepted him. And I almost did. And he was in an issue. And the day before it launched, he decided to call me a very special word. Um, and so I, I pulled his poem. And so luckily, um, he decided to be not very smart and try to offend me. And so luckily, we didn't publish him either. But um. So, so, John, you spoke directly with the person who plagiarized you. Yes. But previously, though, or, yeah, it was, it was um, last year, sometime last year. And so, yeah, I've, I've, I've talked to him. He kept asking me repeatedly, am I getting paid for this poem? And I'm like, no, Ghost City doesn't pay. And he'd be like, and then he'd send me an email again, am I getting paid for this poem? And finally, I was like, for the 10th time, I told you, you we don't pay and then he called me the c word and i was like well um you're not even <laughs> i'm pulling your poem <laughs> yeah that's interesting john because one of the things uh michael zizanajewski with uh moon city review had an interaction very similar with him where um he was recounting it uh and and the poet even after being out as a plagiarist kept asking if he was being paid um, and that was like the only sort of refrain that his replies to emails would have, which is, I don't know, I don't know what to make of the whole thing. I mean, there is a way that 
you know, if you want to make a little bit of money here and there, stealing a poem from one magazine and sending it to one that pays um, is something that you could actually do and, and maybe get away with and get those payments. Although it rises, I think, from plagiarism at that point to actual wire fraud when you're yeah. pretending to con somebody using copyright infringement to, to pay across interstate lines and all that stuff. I think maybe that actually becomes a crime. But, I but like I to say punishable by like five years in prison and a $250,000 fine per per time. Yeah, but it's interesting too, though, that this guy's published in uh, magazines that don't pay as well. So yeah. I, I really don't know what to make of it. It's very strange. But, but Jen, do you want to share your poem? I think it'd be nice to hear, hear a poem. We like to have poems on this podcast. Why don't you share the poem, Mary, in your own version of it? So, so the poem was published in One Art in December 2021, and it's titled Mary. Your mouth is my grandmother's. Now she speaks with her dead voice from your vocal cords. The sharp vows try to pin my conscience. Strong consonants devalue my power. The words themselves leak resin. Wife and children escape her teeth. Trying to catch me, she cannot understand. I don't want either. That I am not gay because I choose to be, but simply I am. Her pyramid scheme of love is ancient. She drives me with prayer. I turn her away with heat. And that's that. Well, thanks so much for sharing that. And is that from your book, The Castration of a Minor God? Yes, it's also published yeah, in, my, in my book. Well, it is a wonderful poem. I find it incredibly odd that he cut the gay reference lines in there. It seems at the total heart of the poem. So your version's <laughs> clearly much better. <laughs> and he and he like fidgeted with the lines so that the stanzas were different and it didn't make it like for me it didn't make it like flow and have that punch as good too because he just kind of like fiddled with the lines to make it look different I guess so people didn't recognize it as easily yeah so uh so John what was your sort of emotional reaction to feeling you know to realize that you've been plagiarized like this because I think it it seems like it must be complex right because on the one hand imitation is the highest form of flattery right so there's a way that you know that he felt like your poem was worth plagiarizing maybe but in another way it's it's something being stolen it must also feel like you know walking into your apartment or something and realizing that the window's been broken and everyone someone was going through your stuff stealing your jewels you know yeah it it was it was weird because like you know you always think if you know like if someone oh if someone took my po like I always thought and and a lot of people I've seen comments on posts because like you said this is a big store and it's going around and people were were like oh you know if he would have stolen my poem and I had that thought too like oh if I was plagiarized that would be cool because they really like my poem but then it happened and you get a whole new reaction and you know it and and especially this poem it's it's real it's about my grandmother and she's dead. Um, and she drove 120 miles just to let me know she found she found out through the grapevine I was a homosexual and she's going to pray for me, wife and children. And then the ending, I turned her away with heat. She asked to come in the house and I said no. And she said, but it's hot out here. And I was like, your car has air conditioner. Um, so it's a really personal poem, too. And I think that's what what got it more, too, was it wasn't just it wasn't just some poem. It was it was really a heartfelt poem in my sense, because not in, as in, you know, love, but like this incident that happened to me with family and it was horrible. And then he go and, and take it as his own. And it's like, you have not, you have no nothing to do with this and, and stuff. And then to realize it was published in three different places and he got $50 for the poem. And that bugged me too, because I've never really been paid for a magazine for my poetry. So I'm like, I'm like, this dude's getting paid before I am with my poem. But I do want to say that the magazine that paid um, him money was really cool. And we talked and, and there was two, they published two poems um, that he plagiarized, one by me and one by someone else. Um, but they gave us both the, um, the payment. And then they um, put on their website, like the link to our poems and their original um, form and stuff. So I thought that was really cool because they didn't have to do that. I just want to say say that, but um, but yeah, it was it was crazy. It you you never like I never thought I would feel like disgust until it happened, and I was just so angry. And then that's what caused me to want to look into it more, um, and and 
notify other magazines and see how far I could um, help people. Well, thanks for sharing that, John. And you bring up a really good point that I think the poetry community's reaction to dealing with this, I was really impressed by, and perhaps none so much as Mark Danowski, who's definitely hit by this and by the number of poems plagiarized, um, in part because One Art is such a great magazine and journal to find poems in, but um, it perhaps made One Art more of a target because of that. So, Mark, what was your experience in dealing with this? Hey, Katie. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's been brutal. And uh, John, I, I very much appreciate what you said. Um, that was all beautiful and well articulated. Um, and the shout out there was uh, to Philadelphia Stories and specifically Trish Rodriguez, the editorial director and poetry editor, Courtney Bambrick, who I was just personally very impressed with how they handled the situation, uh, making a public statement and paying reparations, essentially, which uh, is a topic that I think uh, could be explored, um, definitely, for anyone who, you know, gave money to uh, the person that we're not naming. Um, although it's it's tricky, since I know that the person that informed me of the situation had contacted this individual to ask him to refund money and pay $50 back that they had given him, which seems extremely doubtful that it would happen. Um, and I can see that journals might want to first feel like they were getting money back before they were able to give it to someone else, just given the funding situations of journals. In, in general, I have so much to say about this because it's been so horrific and uh, just extremely you know, upsetting for me, for contributors. Um, and, and it's also been very time consuming, um, that this is sort of a rare situation. I've, I've said before that I'm against generally speaking, deplatforming, um, but primarily in the context of cancel culture. And I think, uh, this is one of those scenarios where I think, uh, this person is sort of guilty until proven innocent. And so anything that has any of his al aliases kind of slapped on it should really just be taken down unless someone proves that the work is by him, um, which is frankly highly unlikely, um, especially if it's published, because I've been um, I've received eight submissions from him um, since he started submitting to One Art in 2022. And uh, had I been paying closer attention, I would have noticed a stark change in the caliber of work. Um, and his, you know, the early poems that were sent to me were not publishable. Um, so it's, it's fairly unlikely that anything is getting into journals that was written by this person. Um, I also wanted to give just a little shout out to Gabriel Airy, uh, who's the executive director of Friends Publishing, which publishes Friends Journal, because he was the person who contacted me and was extremely polite and professional um, and just really just impressive, um, about having a polite private conversation, uh, you know, suggesting a level of discretion and how it could go about contacting editors. And then I immediately after saying like, yeah, that's a great idea, um, <laughs> sort of jumped on Twitter and just started tagging journals and kind of blew up the whole thing because I kind of just couldn't handle sitting on it and felt like, you know, using the microphone since it was such a serious situation was an essential way as far as expedience. And then also uh, Wendy Wagner, who uh, she actually had posted about this the day before on Blue Sky um, and contacted, I think she said seven editors um, who'd been plagiarized. And uh, she's EIC of Nightmare Magazine and also um, a senior editor for Lightspeed which are major journals in the speculative fiction community, um, which tuned me into the fact this person was also trying to publish fiction. And the jump to fiction, the understanding there, of course, was probably an attempt to get more money since there's usually more money, you know, possible payments right. by words. Yeah. Right. I think too, you've just, you've done a fantastic job handling this, Mark. I'm sorry for, you know, a stressful situation that, that you've been affected by with this. I think it also calls to mind, 
what we can do as you know a literary world to make it less likely that plagiarism happens both you know for the poet side and for the editor side and to me the biggest answer um comes from none other than timothy green because of his you know concept of curation over publication and this idea that we should have the ability to share our poems without that you know meaning that they can't be in a journal um, that's one reason I love NFTs is because, you know, it'd be really hard for somebody to, to steal one of my poems that's on the blockchain with a with a date um, locked in there. And so I think that, you know, switching to this idea of sharing our own poems, and that is a way of putting them out there um, that as as Tim, you went into for your wonderful article for Lit Bag News, you know, does not devalue the poems in any way, or and it should not preclude them from um, more serious, visible curation. Yeah, it's true. And really, I think literary magazines are pretty defenseless against this. You know, I, I like I said, I've been googling, you know, every lines from every poem we published since that plagiarism, you know, thing that happened with uh, the Young Poets anthology, and occasionally you find poems that somebody else republished. You know, but the the truth is, uh, there's really this sort of inexhaustible well of poems being published now. I mean, that's what you get when you have 5,000 literary magazines publishing, you know, 100 poems a year. And that's a lot of poems that are out there in the world. And even with the uh, plagiarism checking software that you can use, they check against databases um, and in like uh, Google Books and things like that. But in, until a poem is online for Rattle even, you know, even with our 10,000 circulation and places that it's indexed and things like that, there's no um, there's no evidence of the print poems um, until they appear online, and so um, you know, and so it'd be really easy to go through a magazine, steal a bunch of poems from a print magazine, and republish them somewhere. And if you're trying to get money out of it, um, it's it's I don't know if it's it's worth the time and effort they would take to wait for the acceptance letters to come in, but it's something that we really can't guard against. There's no there's no software solution out there, and I think. Um, you know, the only thing we can do is, like you said, I mean, if we were if we were minting our poems or showing them on social media, we'd at least have a record and they'd be out there and uh, we would know who's who and who wrote what uh, eventually. Yeah, very true. Then we can just make it so that that doesn't make it so that you can't share your poems in all places. So I think your article had a nice reach and you definitely have made strides. I just want to like, you know, I would be really, really happy if I'm 80 years old and we're like, laughing, you know, about the fact that you used to not be able to share your poems. That would make me very happy. I would feel like I did, I did enough in poetry if, if that occurred. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, just uh, go back and read if anybody hasn't in a while that uh, the concept of using curation instead of publication as a standard. I really think that's one of the keys to, to solving this. Yeah, it definitely is. I mean, the literary community, we need to evolve. And this, these are the opportunities to evolve. Uh, so we should take take the opportunities. So let's see. I think Joe Barca has had his hand up for a while. Sorry, Joe. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I think this may be the most emotional episode I've li ever listened to because I've had maybe everyone has a has a um, story like this, but um, about plagiarism. So I have one short one and one a little longer one. I thought that I would share. Uh, the short one is both of these stories go back about eight or ten years on Twitter, and one is. We would do prompts. Lots of people would do prompts and write. Keep in mind, you could only write 140 characters. So these were really short, quote unquote, poems. And I remember one day the prompt was coffee or something. And I wrote a poem, a very brief poem. And someone else whom I knew a bit wrote one. And just purely coincidence, we wrote the same poem. So we kind of laughed because we knew each other. We're like, OK, this isn't plagiarism, but it's kind of interesting. The longer story is a friend of mine quote-unquote friend of mine I knew pretty well on Twitter. We both wrote, supported each other. Someone accused her of plagiarizing her poem on Twitter. These aren't, quote-unquote, curated or published poems. And I had read her work for a long time, and I really thought it was not true. So I made a comment on Twitter, and this person who was attacking her chose to attack me and started coming at me, cre creating stories, narratives of me plagiarizing poems and took my words and twisted them. And this went on for like a week. And finally, I just said, I can either fight or shut down. But if I fight, it could really get ugly. So I, I shut down. I didn't respond. 
And then I blocked this person. And then other people, this person, I believe, created other accounts and started coming after me. She had minions or whatever you want to call them who started attacking me personally, all my poems. And then she said she was going to report me to the Twitter tribunal, this other account who's supposedly monitoring plagiarism. I'm like, whatever. Didn't respond. I'm not going down this path. A month later, the, the tribunal or whatever, the expert, comes back with a report that I've been plagiarizing people. I mean, this was like, I was getting nervous about me, my family, like this. I don't even want to say the words to describe this person who led this attack. I mean, I was telling my wife about it. I'd wake up, I'd have 20 emails of people commenting on my plagiarism. It was just unbelievable, Katie and everybody. And you know me, Katie, total bullshit. I didn't plagiarize anything. These are little tweets we're all just yeah, doing prompts but this attack i mean i was telling my sorry. wife I'd wake up and have sorry. 20 emails of people commenting on my plagiarism it was just unbelievable anyway I'm, honestly yeah i'm so sorry you were dealing with that and true and you bring up a good point too joe you are a prolific poet always putting poems out there and the more prolific you are you know, the more it's likely that someone's going to say hey this reminds me of of this particular thing or like for anybody that's looking at the poems that Tim and I write for the prompt and the Rattlecast every week, I, you know, sometimes mine will have shades of his from last week or vice versa. You know, I think if you're trying to to look for quote unquote plagiarism, you know, it's uh, you can find it in more places than you think if you're if you're allowing for you know what's called soft plagiarism by um, Eric Campbell in that great essay, Tim, that you tweeted and I'll pin to the top for anybody who wants to look at it. Go ahead, Tim. Yeah, yeah, thanks, Joe. I was going to add, one of the things that this comes up a lot in is the um, Instagram poetry world. So if you look back at the interview I had with Pavana Reddy, she talks about it a lot because in Instagram poetry, you get millions of people sometimes looking at it and sharing your poems and then, you know, people steal them and pretend they're your poems all the time. And it's a, it's a problem that they all have to deal with because, you know, we're sort of shielded from it in a way because of how obscure traditional poetry is now few readers we are. And the ones that, uh, that do read poetry sort of respect the integrity of the tradition and, and authorship and things like that and want to build their own careers. But when you're exposed to a wider audience, you get things like this all the time. And the Instagram poets have been dealing with it for a long time, which is why having, you know, records of what you wrote and having a brand identity and being able to, you know, know that it came from this account or this wallet, if you're talking about NFTs, is such a valuable thing. So uh, it's sort of a way to authenticate where poems are actually coming from. Yeah, it definitely is. I mean, something I was thinking about in terms of just plagiarism in general is, you know, like, what, what do you think of when you think of just plagiarism before poetry? You know, you think of like, maybe echoing back to my high school experience and like somebody plagiarizing, you know, a paper in high school. And my thing would also be if you want original writing, then give somebody uh, a prompt, so to speak, that is an original prompt, right towards what's new. You know, our goal with writing should be we're getting with poems to more meaning. We're uncovering more meaning than the people were able to before us as as a result of the wealth of writing that we've, you know, that's landed on our laps by nature of living in the now. Yeah, for sure. And I think, uh, um, you know, I'd like to get to uh, all the more complicated versions of plagiarism too, and all the gray areas in interesting ways in that in which you know that anxiety of influence comes into play i think michael dylan welch your microphone maybe is working now are you here to talk about a uh, deja coup which is a concept we love me and katie were at the uh haiku north america conference when michael was when michael was giving a presentation on deja coup and there's this idea um michael are you there can you unmute yes yourself? yes i'm here can you hear me I can, yeah, yeah. Welcome. Just keep yourself unmuted now as you're talking. Um, so tell us about your idea, your concept of deja coup, which you developed a, quite a long time ago, and, um, and and why that's so important within the haiku community. Because the truth is, you know, it's not necessarily a pejorative to to have a something, um, you know, two people writing toward the same place, or you know, some things, the memory of one haiku creating another haiku. There are so few words that it's really easy to have these overlaps within haiku. Can you talk a little bit about deja coup and what that means? Yeah, yeah, thank you. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, in haiku circles, I mean, there's a long tradition of, of uh, haiku relying on a kigo or season word where you're supposed to write about the same subject. And this is a good thing. And if you write about cherry blossoms, 
called cherry blossom haiku or famous ones or whatever. So the 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 reuse of topics is is common and expected. But in addition to that, in being involved with haiku for decades, I began to notice that some poems, you know, felt too close or um, they they made allusions which were not too close, but made you think of other poems. And the first thought that came to me was some haiku are deja vu haiku. And I just shortened that to deja vu. Um, and it's, yeah pejorative it's it's an umbrella term for any haiku that brings to mind any other poem so illusion or parody would be good kinds or just sharing the same subject or season word um uh, is also perfectly good um the less good kind are overt plagiarism and an accidental sort of plagiarism called cryptomnesia which i could talk about and then there's this group I think we're having too much audio problem, Michael. Uh, yeah, I think we'll have to sort of talk about your concepts ourselves. Katie, is that okay? Can you? Yeah, I think that um, <laughs> it pains me to, to do this to Michael Dylan Welch and talk about his own concept, but maybe there's an irony in that. I think I remember uh, at this last summer, you know, one of the things in the talk that was interesting was just the, the concept, too, of haiku that work in the same way, you know, but aren't necessarily actual plagiarism so for example um i don't know that this would count as a haiku but it was on a million t-shirts in fact i think tim you even had this on a t-shirt and this was something that michael Dillon, not at the time like a long i saw a very old photo of you and they were all they're probably on amazon still but it was like it, it's like haiku are easy but sometimes they don't make sense refrigerator and so like that and then, like, there are a million haiku that are kind of like it. I've written something like that, you know, too, along the way. I think I had one that's like, um, you know, sometimes so, things don't make sense, hippopotamus or something. Yeah, yeah. so that, those, the thing with haiku that, that's so interesting is that because haiku are so short, um, you know, it's instantaneous, it's like an instantaneous poem. It's like two worlds in one breath, like I like to say, but it's that one breath makes it so memorable. And then once it's lodged in your mind, it's so easy to you know, come up with the same thing all over again. In that accidental plagiarist article um, that, that my friend Eric Campbell wrote, um, he had this line that came out of a poem. And let me, let me find it here. It's, uh, he, he came out of this line while he was writing a poem. Our cats, like God, have never spoken a word that isn't ours. And so it's a very haiku-like three lines. And in, through the course of the essay, he realizes that, um, you know, it's close to some things that Stephen Dunn wrote. And he submitted it off to a, a literary magazine and then realized after the fact, looking through a book later, that it was exactly a quote uh, with just the line breaks change from a different poem by Stephen Dunn. Um, and I think haiku work in that way because they're so concise, they're so easy to lodge in your memory, they're sticky. Like the whole point of a haiku is it's this moment that's sticky and, and sticks with you and stays with you. And if you read a lot of them, it's really easy to like write one out again that's very similar to um, something else that you already read and, and you think that you wrote it originally, but you have no idea. And I think the point of Michael's talk, which we love so much, was that um, we should go easy on people to do that because it's really easy to make mistakes and have accidents and have things that you think are original but are not. And it doesn't necessarily have to be nefarious. Um, it can just be false memory. It can be, you know, there's another kind of like bad note taking, which happens and is, is, you know, slightly forgivable, but less so than just having it be lodged in your memory. Um, but those are different levels of plagiarism than um, blatantly stealing things like, um, like John Compton and Mark Donowski were victims of. Um, and then there's another concept that he had in this talk, too, um, which uh, is that, you know, we're all human and we have similar thoughts and we have ideas come to us. And sometimes two people can stumble on the same metaphor. <laughs> and that's not necessarily plagiarism if both people have found the same or similar haiku. You know, I don't know if you know how many people know the name Alfred Russell Wallace, uh, but he... Um, invented Darwin's theory of evolution at the same time Darwin did and just missed publishing it by a few months, I think, if I remember right. And, uh, you know, and so we all know Darwin and Alfred Russell Wallace could be considered a plagiarist, maybe, even though, you know, he came up with the idea completely independently. Um, <laughs> but, you know, stuff like that happens too. So I love the um, openness and generosity of Michael Dillon Welch's uh, concept of the deja vu and that we shouldn't assume the worst at all times when, when these things happen because sometimes it just is a mistake. Um, it is just something that, like a ghost of something hovering in our memories and it just happens. 
Yeah, it's very well said. The generosity, I mean, giving people the benefit of the doubt is rarely something you end up regretting, I think, in my experience. And it comes back to me to that definition that I talked about earlier of Dr. Amy Robillard saying plagiarism is theft because theft, you know, encompasses the intent. That's definitely part of it. Um, also part of why this whole concept, I think it's so hard to define is that really it's coming, it's pulling in what we define property as. Are the words that I string together my property? I believe that they are, but are the concepts behind them property? Not really. I mean, take a really famous poem like uh, Mary Oliver's Wild Geese poem. How many poems have been written that essentially say the same thing as that poem and just not as well? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, um, I lost my train of thought. Take it over, Katie. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that another type of plagiarism I wanted to talk about is called mosaic. And it actually has a new verb for people that are trendier than me called rogeting, which is a reference to the thesaurus where basically you take text and then you rearrange and pick different words to mean the same thing as a form of plagiarism. To me, that counts as real plagiarism because it is theft, just because you're like, hey, it's like next level theft, to be fair. You know, it's like the sophisticated gentleman robber versus the smash and grab dude. But it's still plagiarism and, and should not, you know, of course, be something that exists and is something I think that comes up a lot in poetry. Um, whenever I find myself writing a poem that feels like the same meaning that was created by a different poem, I mean, I'm bored with it, so I throw it away anyway. But I think that in poetry, you know, our goal should always be to expand the meaning and expand the meaning. And so we want to make sure we're getting to that point in our poems. Otherwise, we're not really furthering language, which I think should be the goal. Yeah, yeah, that's really well said. Um, and, you know, there's all this too, um, you know, there's found poetry and there's ways, you know, Kenneth Goldsmith, the way he remixes and recontextualizes through what he calls, uh, what's called uncreative writing. Um, you know, he has a whole book that is, the newspaper, I think the New York Times on September 11th, re, re just re word for word printed, and that's a poem somehow in a book. He also redid the um, Michael Brown's autopsy report as a poem, and, and the idea that that's contextualized differently is something playing with authorship and playing with meaning. And, you know, so there's these things you can do, but I think the real key to those kind of things is being upfront about it, you know, being open. And uh, in revealing your sources, I think if you look at the, the guidelines for fair use, there's a really great model already. Um, and you can look at the Poetry Foundation did a wonderful guide. I was on a little roundtable sort of building this with lawyers um, at an AWP years and years ago. But there's a great guide to fair use um, at the Poetry Foundation in poetry. And you can use that, I think, um, as, a, as a guideline for how to to reveal your sources and make it so it's um, you know, building something new in the same way. If you're making something new using someone else's sources and sort of remixing in that way, like sampling and music, um, if you're creating something new, that's totally fine, but you have to be open about it. You can't hide that fact. And I think, um, you know, when people get into trouble, it's when they don't disclose enough and, and how much should be disclosed is a real question. Yeah, that's a great point. So how does found poetry fit into all of this for you? I know you and I are both like various degrees of fans of found poetry, but you used to do the found poetry project also. Yeah, I had this uh, literary magazine I made sort of anonymously, which is just for fun, which was trying to find little snippets of poetry in places that were unexpected. So it started out as I was driving by um, the strip mall in Studio City, California. And the signs, if you looked at a certain way and read the order of the signs, made a kind of little poem. And I thought that was really cute. So I took a picture of it and, uh, and made that a poem and asked people to, to uh, send other examples of things where poems happen in accidental places. And there is, it's a really great, you know, exercise for students and things to take a piece of text that doesn't seem poetic and then cut and switch and add line breaks and, and re- contextualize it like that phrase that Kenneth Goldsmith uses and make it a poem. And I think that's it's a wonderful thing to do as long as you cite your sources, <laughs> you know, and I think it just, it all comes back down to that again, too, is to, to be open and honest about it. Um, and I think uh, as long as you are, I think that's a great, a great project. Yeah, well, I definitely agree. I mean, you know, the, the whole thing that's become a massive cliche, maybe more on Instagram and things like that, but like, this is a poem, like everything's a poem or whatever. I mean, to be fair, like it's a cliche, but it's how I actually feel 
about life in general, obnoxious as that is. But I think with what you're doing with sound poetry is you're offering a reframe that wasn't there. So like I, I had a visual, what I considered to be a visual found poem, and it was at this, um, this botanical garden slash a rough botanical garden, not like one where they actually have the plaques with the names, but like a rough ish. Uh, botanical gardens in Tallahassee near Florida State where I went and they had they erected this garish sign in like you know the the parks and recreation all brown font that was like no glitter allowed on premises and I just thought it was hilarious because you can just picture like the whole story of what must have transpired out there and to me that was an example of a found poem but what I'm doing is re you know all what you're offering when you write a found write in quotes, a found poem is a reframing of that of that piece into contextualizing it differently. And that's where I find the art and found poetry personally. Yeah, a lot of times people ask, like, how is this a poem? And the answer, that'd be the simplest one, is that someone stood up and said this was a poem. <laughs> and, you know, and that act of saying this is a poem is something that adds a different meaning and, and context to it that, that makes it become a poem. And, uh, and so that's definitely something that's that's interesting to do um and you know it can be done in boring ways and in pointless ways and things that don't actually become poetry but it can make real poetry too um, I, I was reminded of what i uh forgot about before which is i wanted to say you know in, in response talking about michael dylan walter's points about um about the deja coup that there's this this problem with anxiety of influence too and we can't let ourselves sort of fall victim to it by worrying that if we read we might plagiarize. I think that was the a main point that Michael was making that I really thought was important because I, I come across poets so often uh, who tell me they don't read poetry. And then how can you be a great, you know, how can you be a good poet if you don't read poetry? And they tell me they don't read poetry because they don't want to be influenced and don't want to accidentally plagiarize and start stealing other people's voice. And the truth is about voice is it, like Mike, like um, Eric Campbell talks about in that wonderful essay, The Excellent Plagiarist. But, but we're this amalgam of voices. We're almost like large language models ourselves, where we, we you know, I don't know how this sentence is going to finish by the time when I start it. And then it comes through anyway. And it's not really using algorithms to, to map like the odds of a word fitting, but it kind of is in a way like where there's this way that syntax rolls out in a way that we don't really know what's coming. And that really is like a large language model. And, and so, you know, we're really all taking everything from our environment and getting a better, more nuanced voice from it and becoming this amalgam of all the things we've ever heard. And that's what makes poetry interesting. And so avoiding other poetry and being really overly concerned with becoming an accidental plagiarist is something that that's really dangerous and damaging to somebody developing as a better poet and making more interesting poems. And so I think that's another reason why we have to be gracious, like Michael Dylan Welch is with the concept of the um, of the deja coup and, and allowing that to happen sometimes, because sometimes it'll cross the line by accident and go too far. And we have to be forgiving when that's done or, all, or else we'll all have this... Uh, this fear of becoming plagiarists without even knowing it, and uh, it'll stifle all creativity. I, that's so well said, Tim. I, I completely agree with it. And I think it's important to think of us as as striations on a rock, you know, versus entirely new rocks. We are not entirely new. We are an amalgamation of everything that's come before us. And I think our, our poetry should reflect that, you know, that's what enables us to reach higher is that we're starting from this place of luxury where there is so much writing. And, you know, historically, we have more time to be able to write and pursue this than, than ever before. So there's so much going for us and we shouldn't get bogged down in obsessively um, making sure we're not nodding to other poems. I will say, though, most of the people who said that were probably just lazy because it's a lot easier probably to have fun writing our own poems than to really dive in and understand and enter, you know, the body of another and get into poetry that way. So I think anybody who has an excuse for not reading poetry, I will call them out all day long if they want to write poems themselves. <laughs> yeah, that's a, it really is an excuse. And, you know, because so many people are writing just for that pat on the back. You know, we talked about this before, but so many people start writing a poem because they wrote one and their teacher or parent said, oh, this is amazing and gave them some praise and they want to restore that feeling. And really, if you're only writing for that, that little pat on the back, then that's what makes it easy to start plagiarizing, too. Um, and, you know, it's, so reading and actually being absorbed for poetry for the sake of poetry is something that all poets should be doing. We shouldn't be... Um, you know, just uh, avoiding it and trying to get those little pats and nothing else. 
Yeah, that's definitely true. Plus, there are easier ways to get a pat on the back than writing a poem. Let's be honest. <laughs> People well, there's, are not clamoring a poem. on my Twitter to read my <laughs> poems. Yeah, it's true. But, you know, this, like it doesn't make sense for that reason alone. You know, there, there are a lot of amazing reasons uh, to be a poet, to read poetry, to be a part of it. Um, and what I love perhaps the most is that it's not something that can be faked. You know, we are authenticity at its core, even more so, I would argue, than, than fiction. Um, for me, at least, but I guess fiction writers would probably claim the opposite. <laughs> Mark Donowski had his hand up, and then Paul Munch Bernstein joined, too. Mark, what were you going to say? Oh, thanks, Tim. Uh, really, I just greatly appreciated that you shared that Eric Campbell essay, which I, I hadn't read before, and I thought I'd just read one of the quotes from it um, that just relates heavily to what you were talking about and really the importance of poets reading other poets and sort of um, dismantling their own fear of the anxiety of influence in the the Harold Bloom sense. Um, And Campbell writes, I stopped quoting Thoreau. I became manically mindful of my influences. In time, everyone and everything seemed to overlap and bleed. Everything suddenly became so irritatingly and inexorably symbiotic, derivative. I ended up spending many anxious hours interrogating everything I had ever written searching for soft and hard echoes and intimations of other writers. Yeah, that's a great quote. Exactly what I was talking about. We don't want to, we don't want to have the anxiety of doing that for the rest of our lives and having that block up our ability to create because what we're all trying to do is create meaning and we can't do it if we're afraid all the time. Yeah. And I would say too, if you find yourself in that kind of a rut, like if you're mid poem and realizing that, you know, you're regurgitating something from another poet, you know, maybe just allow yourself to do that privately and then push beyond it and say, how can I get to the meaning that was, that's left for me to, to, you know, to carve out of this, like a relief, you know, allow yourself and then push beyond it as opposed to to being so afraid that you can't even approach uh, a specific topic or a specific way of approaching a poem. Yeah, that's a really great point. I mean, there's ways to lean into it. I, I think about a, too. I mean, if that's ever happening, there's an exercise that um, that Jack Grapes used to do, where if you, you were writing a poem mid-sentence, you had to uh, glance at some dictionary or something to look up another word, and you add that immediately into the sentence you're making to throw you off the track, the rut that you're stuck in. And I think maybe that's something else you could do if you're if you're feeling that way. Is just surprise yourself and push yourself in a weird direction, and that usually will will take care of itself. Yeah. And then, of course, you can make an after poem or you can go even further. One of the Rattlecast prompts that we did was to write a sequel, which our concept of the sequel was to take a poem, an existing poem, and then start an after poem that happens immediately at the close of that one. And so then you're very blatant about how immensely connected your poem is to the other one. And that's very freeing. You know, I for that week, I did a sequel to Good Bones, Maggie Smith's Good Bones, and I never would have been able to get that close to that poem if I hadn't been blatantly like, I'm a fan of this poem, I'm writing a sequel that takes place right after it. And that's an homage versus, you know, if I just put up that poem with no reference, it would have been plagiarism for sure. Yeah, there's sort of a, a sense of self-confidence and daring, you know, almost like a cockiness or something that you have to have as a writer. Like it's, 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 there aren't that many original thoughts in the world and you have to sort of have faith that you'll come up with something that's original and interesting. And, and, you know, and and if you, if you lose that sort of sense of boldness, you really can't be a writer. And I see it all the time with, with people who sustain themselves as writers. They're all the people who have that, you know, you might call it ego or something or arrogance, but you need that in order to create. And, um, you know, so you have to push past any worries about, you know, copying people and then dealing with the consequences and, and, and you know, exposing uh, yourself where uh, where things were, were taken and borrowed and, you know, disclosing that is important. But but you have to have the confidence to push forth and try to create something new. That's definitely true. I saw a quote that resonated with me a lot that was by Mokohono, who said, plagiarism is the fear of a blank page. And I think that really sums it up very well. Um, and and probably as people have an easier time getting into a flow state when they sit down to write, um, they're not as afraid and able to push beyond and find more meaning too. Yeah, that's a great quote. Um, hey, Paul, Paul Mitchell Bernstein's here and, and he um, did have a comment, I think. Paul, what do you want to add to the discussion? 
Yeah, well, I, I mean, on the topic of soft plagiarism, I was just going to say kind of what's been said. Like, to me, that was always, when I was younger, the term was derivative. You know, something was derivative and sometimes criticized for that. And, and um, I'm one of those people who doesn't read a ton of poetry. I mean, I read probably more than people who don't read poetry. Um, I read, you know, the great poets and stuff, and I'm and, um, trying to maybe have been derivative of that, but... Uh, I guess it's all, you know, there's that old saying to be a writer, you got to have something to write about and you write about what you know. And like Tim, you just said, you know, there's not that many the human experience is so similar between people. And, you know, so to write a poem about watching swans on a lake or something like that, it's very easy to fall into something derivative. I once heard, um, what's his name, uh, Charlie Kaufman a uh, great screenwriter who wrote like being John Malkovich and, and other really original screenplays. And he said, you know, the reason there's so much derivative work and the reason that, um, you know, that so many movies or the, and books and poems and everything are sort of the same is because a lot of people are writing about media, like, and even more so now, a lot of people really have grown up their whole lives and their main experience of the world is through media. It's through books and television and movies. And so when they go to write about something, it's it's they're writing about writing, you know, rather um, than sort of their own experience and what they know. And that causes uh, a lot of derivative. And I guess, I don't know if that's the soft plagiarism thing, um, but, you know, just stuff that has echoes of other work um, a lot of people spend 25 years in school and then they go to work every day. And then, um, yeah, so I don't know. I was just that, you know, I was going to say derivative rather than putting that term plagiarism on it, which can have such a negative connotation. Um, and yeah, to avoid it, I'm one of those people called out who I don't read a lot of poetry. Um, and, uh, and yeah, write what you know, you know, instead of like, Tim, you always say, you know, why are you writing this poem? Are you writing a poem just to write a poem? Or do you have something to say? So, yeah, that's all. Thanks. Yeah, exactly. Really, really well put, Paul. That was a great, great comment at the end. Yeah. I would say, too, write what you know so you can learn what you don't know is always my goal. <laughs> yeah, very well put, too, Katie. Do you want to close out now? I think it would be a good time with um, a, a closing poem. Yeah, definitely. So I am going to pick a poem that was uh, was plagiarized and now is up on One Art. It is by Catherine Regal. And uh, I like both of these poems that came on today um, that I, I pinned to the top in case anybody wants to read. And I also want to give Catherine full billing and say that she's also on Twitter or X. Ah, X sorry, guys. X. <laughs> she, if you want to follow her, too, because she went through, you know, some of what John Constant was speaking about earlier with having had her poem plagiarized. So this is When I Stopped by Catherine Regal. When I Stopped. I never had to beg for a pony. The horses just were muscled motion, familiar as milkweed seeds. My mother had epilepsy and my father thought that should make us all as angry as he was. Poor, delicate, out of control, tyrant with his fist clenched tight. We lived so easily then, but no one knew it. The 1970s full of fear as any decade. I knew raspberry thorns and barn smell, freedom on bike and horseback and sneakered foot, place as solid as ice in the water buffets come winter. And then they sold the horses. I had not known you could sell family and we moved to town. That must be when I stopped trusting I would be loved forever. So a beautiful poem by Catherine Regal, published by One Art. Mark Donowski, of course, having joined us today as well. So I think a very appropriate one to close out the space with. Yeah, yeah. Great poem, Katie. Uh, great reading of it, too. And uh, that trust comes in at the end. You know, trust and love come together. And we have to trust each other in order to do this poetry stuff. And, uh, you know, trust ourselves to to um, not be plagiarists and to, to be forthcoming about everything. So I think it's a good note to end on, too. Yeah, definitely. And um, I really want to thank everybody for joining us uh, through our technical issues today, too. <laughs> it was particularly kind of you uh, to be here. And uh, Tim, do you want to tell everyone what we're going to be talking about next week on the Poetry Space? 
Well, next week is the week before Valentine's Day, and we're going to do uh, love poems again, which apparently we talked about doing this and we forgot that we did it last year. So maybe it's going to become a tradition that we talk about love poems every uh, every Valentine's yeah. Day. Which honestly couldn't be more appropriate for this week's space, too, that we self-plagiarize. It's going to be the first time we've ever repeated a topic. We are over a year in now, so I feel like that. But it's kind of hilarious because Tim was like, did we do that already? And I'm like, no, we didn't do love poems. We just did sonnets for Valentine's Day last year. And then I looked and I was like, yes, we did love poems. (laughs) But we're doing it again because, you know, there's a lot to talk about. And Valentine's Day, I think it's fair. I think anybody that doesn't want that topic probably isn't listening anyway. That's true. Yeah, it's going to be fun talking about love poems. And, and we've written some in the last year, too. So we can maybe share more poems than we did last year. Yeah, for some reason, I have written love poems this year. I wonder why that is. <laughs> we'll see. All right, guys. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. And I feel like my meaning of what plagiarism is has been expanded upon. And I hope that you guys feel similarly and had a nice time with us here in the poetry space. Hope you have a great week. And we will see you next week for Love Poems. Thanks, everybody. Bye.